Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 116. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of shale laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, from all the external evidence, Patrick was uh, an easygoing, happily married family man who was running a successful business. He had also just tried to take his own life. In his book, Invisible Men, psychologist Michael Addis talks about meeting Patrick. After some prodding, Patrick uh, finally opened up to what had led him to the place that he had gotten to. His business had steadily slowed down until uh, things had just evaporated. His income was gone. He couldn't make the mortgage payments on his house. And then that started an even worse financial spiral. And then the economy crashed. And Dr. Addis writes, it was Patrick's response to these events that really struck me. Rather than letting his wife or friends know about the struggles that he was facing, Patrick kept it all to himself. And over time, the gap between what people thought he was and what he actually was experiencing on the inside grew deeper and deeper until he sunk into a depression. He couldn't face working, but he also couldn't face telling people how bad things had gotten. And eventually, the depression became so severe that he saw no other way out. Patrick said, how could I face them? What would they think of me? I'd, I'd look like a has-been. I'd look like a weakling who couldn't handle things on his own. I, you know, like a little boy crying out, Mommy, help me. I could not let people see me like that. Addis says, on the one hand, it's certainly understandable that nobody wants to see themselves as, as a little kid when you're an adult crying out, Oh, Mommy, save me. But if you stop and think about it, Addis says, which is worse, to cry out for help or to die. How far will people go to hide their shame? How many Patricks are there who would rather suffer alone than risk breaking through the silence and the loneliness? 
In an excellent book called uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Peter Scazzaro writes, when we deny our pain, our losses, our feelings, year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on the outside. Maybe it's partly because we don't know if we really have people that we can trust to talk to. We're more connected than ever through online social media outlets, and, and we have more access to guidance and, and offers of wisdom and suggestions for life than ever, but it's not really certain that that's helping us. Uh, in fact, if Facebook makes you depressed, you are not alone. Uh, and that's not just because of all the political posts. Uh, a survey of 1,500 14 to 24-year-olds found that social media deepened people's feelings of inadequacy and anxiety exacerbated body image worries, and worsened bullying, sleep problems, and feelings of depression and loneliness. This is a social media platform that's doing this. Can, can you see the irony here? The, the culture, the same culture that tells us, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to accomplish to be successful, also creates the loneliness and depression that drives us away from people when life fails to measure up. And for a lot of people, we just, you know, we just turn that inward because we don't know that there's anyone we can talk to. But other times, you know, maybe that explodes outward too, right? 20 years ago, people were talking about living in a culture of rage and dissatisfaction with explosions at school and work and on the road and kids' soccer games and, and on and on. So, so what do we do with this? I mean, we have more options for information, we're inundated with advice and, and role models, but we've lost trust in traditional institutions and people that we used to look to for guidance. So we live in a, a culture that discourages us from being honest about what's really going on inside of us and also gives us really bad role models for how to deal with the reality of our interior lives. And, and at the same time offers these endless options for wisdom and advice and, and guidance and how to succeed at life, but gives no insight on who we can really trust or believe. So what do we do with all that? Scazzaro continues in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I realize that a failure to appreciate the biblical place of feelings within our lives has done extensive damage, keeping a lot of people in slavery. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives our heart a voice. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. God wants us to be able to understand what's going on inside of us, why we're feeling what we're feeling, and, and what to do with it. And the good news is that God gives us encouragement and direction in his word to understand all that. It, it's a significant role of this book of the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms have been called an anatomy of every part of the human soul. And, and the Psalms are not just God's word to us, but almost uniquely in the Bible, they're actually our words back to God. The inspired writers of scripture are led to cry out to God, to express this whole range of human experience and, and feeling. 
Tremper Longman, a professor of biblical studies at Longmont College, uh, in his book, How to Read the Psalms, says, the conversation in the Psalms between God and his people is direct and intense, intimate and honest above everything else. The Psalms are kind of like a, a literary sanctuary in the scriptures, the place where God meets his people in a special way and where his people address them with praise and lament and, and everything that's going on in their lives. Uh, by the way, uh, just as a note, if you guys noticed on your bulletin covers or, or in faith news, um, you may have wondered what this book of slams is that uh, we're going through this summer. Uh, I looked at the, at the bulletin, at the email, and I just, you know, I totally missed it. I did not connect with it at all. So do not worry. We are not going through a brand new book of the Bible called Slams. Uh, although, you know, maybe Poetry Slam or something. We'll see if Joey brings a, a Poetry Slam in a couple of weeks or something. Uh, we're, we're going through the book of Psalms. Uh, and, and what I'd like to do in this passage in Psalm 116 is explain where this series is going and why this series matters and give some brief observations about, about this important book of the Bible. Uh, so just a couple of brief uh, introductory comments about the Psalms themselves. First of all, the Psalms are meant to instruct us. The Psalms are meant to teach us and, and to guide us. We're meant to learn about God and about ourselves and, and about how to respond to life. And, and that's obvious even from Psalm 1 that introduces the whole book. The wise person meditates on God's law continually. And, and the word for law there is Torah, which, yes, means law, but more broadly means instruction. The, the wise person is guided by God's instruction for all of life, which includes this book of the Psalms. In fact, the Psalms are traditionally divided into five books or five sections to parallel the, the law of Moses, to, to reestablish that they are teaching us just as much as the rest of God's Word. The Psalms are to instruct us. The Psalms also help us express what's going on in our lives. They're, they're songs, they're poems. That's literally what Psalm means. They're meant to be read or sung and poetry and singing like that are meant to stir our emotions and, and express the affections of our heart. Listen to this list of just some of the things that are expressed in the Psalms. Anger and awe, confidence, delight, discouragement, fear, gratitude, grief, hope, joy, loneliness, pain, peace, regret. Shame, sorrow. We've probably experienced all those things ourselves. And, and the Psalms are here to help us give voice to those things and, and to also show us that we can't actually have control over our emotions. Not that we're not going to feel those things, but they guide us in how to express them rightly back to the Lord and process through them. And through that, the Psalms transform us then too. God guided what was written and arranged so, so that when we sing and, and read these words, our hearts and our lives are being shaped by God in the process. Because see, when, when we come to know and follow Christ, it's the Holy Spirit gives birth to a new life inside of us. But, but how is that new life nurtured? How does it grow in, to, to be conformed to Christ? Historically, the church has seen these psalms as core to shaping our hearts and our minds in alignment with who God is and what his will for us is. There's songs and poetry and the meditation of, of God's people, and, and that's what we want them to do for us. 
So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Psalm 116, or if you have one of those uh, black Bibles in the seat underneath you, you can pull that out, and that's on page 604. And what we want to look at in the rest of our time this morning is, is what the psalmist comes back to over and over again throughout this psalm, if you noticed, this refrain of calling on the Lord. In verse 2, he says, I will call on the Lord as long as I live. In verse 4, I called on the name of the Lord, oh, deliver my soul. In verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Verse 17, I will call on the name of the Lord. In the middle of all the voices, all the wisdom, all the inputs, all the connections, all the social media, all the friends, why do we call on the Lord? Why particularly do we look to him? Look at how the psalmist describes it. First of all, the the Lord is the one who cares for us. The Lord cares. In verse 5, gracious is the Lord, is Yahweh, and righteous. Our God is merciful. We just slow down and let's remind ourselves of what that means. The Lord is gracious. We have a God who does, does not give us what we deserve and in fact gives us what we don't deserve. We have a God who is generous and good. And these psalms are are at least in part about encouraging us to remind ourselves of how God has poured out blessing and kindness on us over and over and over again. And he is merciful. He he doesn't repay us according to what our sins deserve. He, he He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't judge us. And the Lord is righteous. That means he is right in everything that he does. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is good all the time in all his ways. And that's in contrast to us. Uh, Before Amelia and I were married, I lived in the apartment that uh, we were going to be living in uh, after our marriage. Uh, I lived in it for about six months. And so, of course, I had moved all my stuff in and, and got it all settled and arranged exactly the way everything was supposed to be, right? It was perfect. And then we got married, and then Amelia moved in, and all of a sudden, she starts rearranging everything. And you're like, wait a minute, what, I, everything was perfect. What happened? You're, now you're messing it up. Why is the toilet paper rolling the wrong way over the roll? And, and, and the biggest argument we had was that Amelia, for some reason, thought it was not a great idea to keep the black velvet painting of Elvis over our bed in the bedroom. That was the first major fight we had as a couple. Now, some things have changed. Uh, my, my taste in art has developed uh, over the last 25 years. Listen to what John Piper says in his book, uh, The Pleasures of God, the, the picture of the way that God loves us. Sometimes we say about marriage, the honeymoon is over, right? You move in and then you start living together and, and you find out all the stuff that you didn't see before you got married. The honeymoon is over. But Piper says that's because we are finite. We can't sustain a honeymoon level of intensity and affection. We don't foresee all the irritations that come with living with someone who's different from us. We can't stay as fit and handsome as we were when we got married. Our our bodies get old and, and they wear out and they don't work the right way. We can't come up with enough new things to keep the relationship fresh. But God says his joy for his people is like a bridegroom over a bride. And that's like a honeymoon level intensity of enthusiasm and enjoyment. 
And God is infinite in his power and in his love. He has no trouble sustaining a honeymoon level of care and delight for us. And he already knows all the quirks of our personality. And he's chosen to to love us anyway. He isn't going to change. He's always going to be as handsome and good and delightful and desirable as he was when we first knew him. And he will see that we come to grow more beautiful over time. And he is infinitely creative to think of new things to do together so there'll be no boredom for the next trillion ages of millenniums. The Lord cares. The Lord cares about you. He cares about what you're going through. He never gets tired of you. He never sighs and rolls his eyes at the latest thing that you did. He is patient. You you never wear out your welcome with him. He's always glad to hear from you. He is loving. We call out to God because in a world of superficial caring, God is the one who cares. And not only does he care, he knows. He knows us. That's a scary thing, but but it's a good thing. Keith Miller in Christianity Today says, I think we're often unreal about ourselves, even as Christians, because we're afraid that if people find out what we're actually like inside, behind the mask, they won't accept us and listen. And therefore, we won't be able to fulfill our self-centered needs through our associations with them. That one kind of grabbed me. See, I want you to like me, and so I don't want to risk being honest with you, and that keeps me from being able to really love you, because if I'm not able to let the mask down and be honest, I'm using you to validate my need for identity and and ego. I need you to think well of me so I can't be honest. And so then I'm not really loving you, and, and then no one really knows me and gets to love me either, because I can't put the mask down. But God knows. God knows. Look look at what the psalmist says in verse 6. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Derek Kidner has a great word about this in his commentary. The simple is a revealing description, and in the Old Testament, it has no merit to it at all. The silly would probably be a good way to put it. The gullible, feckless people who roam through the pages of Proverbs drifting into trouble. It's humble of the psalmist to identify himself that way. It's humble of God to have time for them. That's us. I'm I'm the simpleton. I am the silly, foolish person. And God knows it. He knows what we need. He preserves us. He preserves the simple. He is the one who has the wisdom that we need. All mankind are liars, the psalmist says. Any wisdom that we hear, any truth that we receive is only a dim reflection of God who is the ultimate source of truth and wisdom. And it doesn't matter whether it's MSNBC or Fox News or that ridiculous email that your great uncle sent around, whatever it was, there's nobody who is ultimately really objective and really wise. Only God knows the motives. Only God knows what's going on in hearts. Only God is qualified to judge. Verse 7, 
Return, O my soul, to your rest. That's what God wants to give us. That, that we would trust in him, that he knows, he knows what we thought and what we think and what we need. And he wants to give us rest in the middle of it. Rest from death, from worry, from fear, from despair. And, and that as we call out to him, the Lord hears us. The Lord actually listens. He hears. You know, we moved here in uh, January 2016 from St. Louis. And, uh, you know, I had a cell phone. And so I, of course, just kept my St. Louis cell phone number because I had all these friends who were in my address book and they had that number. And, and after a while, I started, it, the thought suddenly came to me like, I wonder if people here in Indianapolis actually know that I'm calling them. Maybe there's like people I'm, I'm trying to connect with and they're not picking up the phone because they look at the caller ID and they're like, 314, I don't know anyone in St. Louis, so I'll just let it go to voicemail. So I figured out, you know, a little while ago, it would be good for me to get a 317 area code. So I have a, phone, a new phone number. I think, I, I guess I'm officially a Hoosier now because I'm in 317, but, but that... Caller ID made me think of this relationship we have with God, right? Caller ID is wonderful in a lot of ways, isn't it? I mean, don't you enjoy having the ability to say, I don't really want to talk to that person. I'll press seven, let that go to voicemail. Do you ever wonder if God does that with us? Oh, this person again? Ah, oh, voicemail. Pfft. Prayers never go farther than the ceiling. No. No, look at what the psalmist says. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. He inclined his ear to me. That, that's a picture of, of like God stooping over like we do with little kids, you know, when, when you got to get down on one knee to be at a level where, where you can hear them and they can hear you. That's what God does with us. Isn't that amazing? God hears he, he bends over to our level. Even in the worst of circumstances, look in verse 10. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Do you ever wonder sometimes, you know, those feelings of doubt or despair or discouragement or, or being overwhelmed, that, that is not proof that, that you've lost your faith. If anything, it's proof that our faith is strong because if we're in those circumstances and we're crying out to God, we're crying out because we believe that he cares and that he hears and that he wants to do something about it. God hears if we cry out to pain, cry out to him in pain for, for healing, deliverance, for guidance, for wisdom. We believe that he inclines his ear to us. Like in verse four, I, I pray, oh Lord, deliver my soul. And maybe some of you are living there right now where it's just a cry of desperation. God, I don't, I don't even know where to turn. I don't know what to do. God, deliver me. Help me. Do you trust that the Lord hears? That God hears? He's never too busy. He doesn't have the caller ID on. We call to the Lord knowing that he listens. And, and best of all, more than that, the Lord is the one who rescues us. The Lord is the one who saves. You know, I think I've, I've mentioned before that uh, my folks divorced when I was about 11. And uh, growing up as a young man, child of divorce, I, I was angry. I was lonely. I was insecure. And, and 
And of course, that often expresses itself in, you know, kind of a boastful pride a lot of times too. And that was true of me as well. And, and especially as I got into later high school and college, I, I was just, I just wanted somebody to say, hey, I believe in you. I, I'm with you. I, I like you. And so in, in later high school and college years, that meant getting involved in a, a fraternity, which in itself is not a bad thing. But a lot of that connection in the fraternity was around parties and, and drinking and just being stupid. But it felt good because these guys were going to give me identity. They were going to welcome me. They were, they were going to save me from being lonely and, and rejected. And then I got a girlfriend. Wow, talk about acceptance. I mean, this, she actually wants me. She desires me. She, she wants to give herself to me. This person finds me attractive. Wow, that's going to save me. Even in the middle of it, there, there's this empty longing that, that sex and parties and, and alcohol could not satisfy because I was still restless, I was still unhappy, I was still angry and insecure in the middle of all of it. But finally, finally God opened my eyes and, and I came to see that Jesus was the one that could actually rescue me from all that. He delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, you see. God rescued me from running down dead ends towards people and things that, that could never save me. He, he brought me from despair and anger and hopelessness and insecurity to a, a growing sense of joy and life and hope and, and purpose and acceptance. And, and he rescued me from kind of a hopeless wandering to, to put me on a path of eternal life and eternal significance and, and a purpose. The psalmist pictures it this way in verses 3 and 4. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol or the grave laid hold of me. I was in distress and anguish. And the only one that saves us out of that is the Lord. He's the only one who can save us. And sometimes God saves us from those troubles. And sometimes he saves us in the middle of those troubles. Crying out to God is no guarantee that he's going to deliver us from the, from the difficulty that we're in right now. And, and that's maybe why we look for other people and other things to cry out to, right? Because when I'm hurting, I just want the pain to stop. Make it go away. I don't want to go to a doctor that tells me, you know, your pain is really part of a greater purpose. And I think, I think there's something significant happening here, so we're not going to treat it. I'm, I'm not going to that doctor, Right? Well, the doctor is going to make me feel better. And that's the risk we run with God, isn't it? Because sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says not now, and sometimes he says just trust me in the middle of it. And that's why we always have the temptation to keep running for other saviors and other counselors and other helpers. But God is the one who is worthy of trust and love and obedience. Look at how that's expressed here by the psalmist. Back in verse 1, I, I love the Lord because he's heard my voice. And because he's inclined his ear to me, I will call on him. He is the one that I will trust and love for as long as I live. 
Verse 9, I will walk before him in the land of the living. I will follow him. And then this expression in verses 12 going on, what, what could I render to the Lord for all that he's done for me? Seeing this, this goodness of God, there's this response of awe and, and gratitude. You know, last week, Joey did a great job bringing this conclusion to our, our series, uh, looking at the life of King Josiah and the, and the sad end of the kingdom of Judah and these last kings who just one bad king after another until finally God says, I'm done. I've warned, I've threatened, and, and now I'm pouring out my judgment. And you see, what, what God is saying here is, in Christ, we don't get the cup of his wrath. We get the cup of his salvation. And, and that leads us to gratitude and joy and generosity. I, I will pay my vows to the Lord. I will give back to him out of a glad and grateful heart. Even death becomes transformed because now, now precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And I wondered what that was for a number of years. I mean, it's God like saying, boy, it's, it's awesome when, when people that I love die. No, he's, he's not, he's, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean wonderful or delightful, but highly valued, costly. You know, Shane Hogue and Don Fields, Dan Harding, Fred Cowan, you know, we, we don't grieve for them. They're, they're rejoicing, they're alive, but, but the reason they're experiencing that is because it cost God dearly to purchase that rescue for them and for us. And, and, and so now, now I'm freed. God has loosed my bonds to walk in the path of his commands. I'm now a servant of the living God who knows and loves and cares for and guides me. And so therefore, I will offer to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on his name. I will show with my life and my choices and my heart and what I allow to shape me that I love and trust him. Because he is the one who is worthy. And it's, it's something we experience ourselves, but it's not a faith that's just about us. Because I will do this in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. There's a community aspect to this, right? Because our faith is lived out with one another, and we become people who do this for each other. What if this is what our community of faith looked more and more like, that, that we gather together intentionally on Sunday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Friday or whenever it is, that our goal was to point one another in this way, that our goal was to show one another how the Lord knows and the Lord cares and the Lord hears and the Lord saves, and so he is the one we need to listen to. In the middle of a world of all kinds of noise and distraction, and, and com competition for, for our love and devotion, that the Lord is the one who rescues us. Psalms is from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Hebrew, they're known as tehillim, or praises. And that tells us that, that praise, that delight, that rejoicing in the Lord grows through soaking in this word and allowing it to shape us as we meditate on God's ways and God's words and, and God's works through these psalms. So when you came in this morning, you may have received one of these handouts. If you didn't, you can get one at the, at the back as you head out. 
Uh, it's a schedule of daily readings in the Psalms over the summer. So that as we are going through the Psalms together on Sunday morning, this is a, a reminder and encouragement for us to take an opportunity in our families and our private devotion time to be allowing this word to soak into us, to shape us, to, to grow us. And, and there's some encouragements there on, on how to read and understand and apply the Psalms and some space for you to write down some of your own observations and, and, and what you're taking away from that. We're calling this series Songs of Rescue because the Psalms are meant to shape our hearts and our minds in response to what God has done for us in Christ. The Psalms point out our need for rescue in the middle of all the, the mess of our emotional experiences, despair and discouragement and pain and confusion, but, but we need rescue and guidance when things are good too. We need God's rescue and guidance and direction through success and prosperity and blessing as much as anything else. See, most of us don't shut out God intentionally. It's not like we make a conscious decision to ignore God or discount him, but, but we can end up there because we spend so much time watching and listening to and, and trusting in and valuing the, the wisdom and the ways of this world that, that it seems attractive. You know, we, we, we start soaking in it and listening to it and it shapes us and, and we start listening to the wisdom of the world and believing in the rescue that it offers and, and we start thinking about it and delighting in it and, and we think less and less about Christ and we talk to him less and we, we trust him less. But the hope against all of that is just like the, the pleasures of the world and the trust in the world are awakened by focusing on them so that trust and the love and the delight in the Lord can be awakened by focusing on him and in his word, by, by looking at him. And so we want to ask God to help us over this summer to, to meditate on the wisdom and the goodness and the love and the care of God to, to stir hope and joy in us. So we invite you for these next 10 Sundays to join with us as, we, as we're going to try and think and feel with God together through the Psalms. God knows. God cares. God hears. And God saves. Call to him. Let's do that together. Father, we thank you that you know our hearts. You know how foolish we are, how easily led astray we are, and how bombarded we are with wisdom and counselors and guidance and advice and saviors endlessly. God, give us faith to trust you, to love you, to follow you, because you know. You know us inside and out, and you make it safe for us to come to you. You care. You care and you want to give us what is good. You hear when, you call, when we call to you. And you are the one who saves us. Oh God, we cry out to you, not just today, but pray that you would stir our hearts to turn to you more and more, that you would shape us and grow us and that we would call to you in love and hope and joy and faith and trust in the middle of it all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.